it's not like you go from level four to level three and suddenly you're free to free of hatred or you're free of being horny or you're free of wanting to, <laughs> you know, eat disgusting food or something like that. It's just that you are there more vividly with that mechanism <clears throat> in your personality. You're not taking your personality personally. And there's something that is separate from that mechanism that can choose with like a capital C. And so a lot of people are like, yeah, I go from level three to level two. You know, maybe I'm level two. You're probably level five, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> the big hormone Enneagram. Hi, I'm John Lukovich, uh, actual self-president of the Wing. Hi, I'm David Gray, self-press sexual 9 with 1974 trifix. What up, it's Emika. I'm an 8-wing 7, sexual self-press with 854 fixes. Hi, I'm Nancy. I am a self-press social 3-wing 4 with a 369 trifix. If you like our podcast, guys, make sure you go like and subscribe on the Apple Podcast app. And if you really like us, you should definitely leave us a review. But this is a great topic because it's, it tends to be something that comes up so much whenever you try to make distinctions. It's the most go-to deflection that people make mm-hmm. that, oh. uh, that, you know, what about health? And this is just uh, such an unhealthy. Well, I'm I get healthy for. Yeah. Yeah, so one reason to talk health is because like our type 5 description to some people is we were just describing an unhealthy person, right? Yes, absolutely. Right, right. yeah. I think, yeah, that's like something to really touch on is that uh, the ways that we just always throughout history, people pathologize differences. Mm-hmm. And there's a distinction between a difference and a health and like what seems unhealthy to one type is not going to be unhealthy actually from a certain another point of view in a different type but also yeah just like how counterintuitive health is uh as a concept like we all just think it's like health like oh i'm just i'm getting more effective or something like that i'm happier yeah so that kind of shit i want to get into yeah because you need to to get into health you need to separate negativity from it because that Everybody thinks that health or low attitude. levels of health is attitude or negativity. And it's like, no, no. Yeah, not even right. a little bit. From the Enneagram perspective, negativity in types isn't actually negative. Right. right. All right. Welcome to the low vibrational lifestyle of big hormone Enneagram. We are tackling the concept within the Enneagram of health. And uh, in particular, we're looking at Riso and Hudson's levels of health, levels of development, as they're called, and uh, how this concept is deeply misunderstood, what it actually refers to, and how the popular understanding of health is used to uh, actually prevent us from seeing ourselves when we don't really know, like when, when there's not a good understanding what the levels of development actually represent and what they're actually describing. They're often used by people just unconsciously to prevent themselves from seeing themselves. And the thing about health, and um, just to be clear about what we're referring to when we refer to health within the Enneagram, what I find a lot of people who are interested in Enneagram, who are coming from a self-help point of view, are using the definition of health that is generally held in like North America in terms of 
personal development. Psychological is, health. Yeah. In terms of like health, in terms of self-improvement, uh, better outcomes, better attitudes, positive outcomes, positive attitudes in terms of uh, improving one's ability to be human, like improving your communication skills, improving your ability to deal with conflict. And so there tends to be this idea that a healthier um, state that someone can achieve is something that's uh, positive. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. And it, it, it's not talking, the Enneagram in terms of health is not referring to the same thing at all. And it even gets into positive art, right? Like art that has a positive message right mm -hmm. like somebody like hr geiger he must be unhealthy they might say right or something like that right right aesthetics yeah. and goodness yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah virtue mixed in with uh like health and virtue kind of equated in some yep. way or virtuousness as a signal mixed in with what health is i think we did a podcast about some of the cultural overlays of how this has affected people's approach to the Enneagram. And I think it's a similar thing that's going on with the self-help view of approach to the Enneagram, which is saying that uh, anything that's healthy is good. It's moral, it's virtuous. Uh, and so anything that's dark or negative, and part of the reason why types like four and five aren't allowed to be what they are is because their base level type structure doesn't seem quote unquote healthy. Right. And when you say not allowed to be what they are, you mean in the definitions that people want to hold in the yes. community, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like we just did, a, you know, we, the last episode we did was on type five and not a five and looking at all the different distinctions of what five really is. And I could see, I think I've seen some responses of people uh, to that episode to say that what we described was some kind of pathological uh, low level type five personality. And so this is a, reoccurring issue that whenever you try to make distinctions for four, five, or even eight, that the general consensus that people have or the compulsion that people have coming from the perspective of other types is to try to re-render those types as something good. Like, you know, I see this happen all the time where eight is supposed to be this heroic savior of the underdog. And right. I, I know that when I first encountered eight descriptions online, I was like, I don't relate to any of that shit. You know, like so this thing that we need to make these types good that they have to have a good purpose and um you know for types that are inherently looking at the opposite of that um that's that's why i think this misconception about health really gets in the way of seeing what these types are right. yeah and i i think part of the issue comes from uh, a large portion of the world being sixes and nines and so they kind of think that well how can anything be outside of this six to nine kind of world of like usefulness and kindness and open-mindedness and blah 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 <clears throat> so yeah I, I kind of think a lot of people just are sixes and nines and don't know what right, else so that could be <laughs> and that's the standard for what is health or that defines what yeah is. yeah yeah yeah, so I think I want to give like a brief history as I understand it of health as a, the level of development, basically, um, because that's like the it, it, like it's not that the levels of development are where the whole concept of health comes from, but it's like the main tool or concept used to unpack and understand health within the Enneagram world. And, um, you know, like some schools like uh, Deborah Rutten School of uh, 
conscious living center or something. They use something called spiral dynamics in their levels of consciousness, which I think is a kind of a misnomer for what the spiral is describing. They use that instead. Mm. And I don't think that is actually mm. a measurement of health. And I don't think it's a measurement of actual consciousness. I think it's this kind of consciousness, like you could say cultural consciousness or something like that, or, you know, whatever. Those levels get confused with levels of consciousness and levels of health, just to say that. But what I, what I understand or what I know, and I might be saying some of this wrong, is that, uh, you know, Don Risa was working on personality types with the book, and he started to organize, he took, spent years working on it, and he, he was organizing the types with, uh, like, note cards, and uh, he started just writing different traits or qualities of the types and trying to organize them and see what patterns emerge out of having these note cards together. What he started realizing is, uh, you know, the spectrum of how the types express themselves, but also that there seemed to be something distinct, distinct gradations as the types became uh, more neurotic or freer. And uh, he started recognizing there was nine distinct levels. So it wasn't like he was aiming for it, but he just came upon it. And, you know, I think that there's definitely something to that where Enneagram reveals itself in patterns of threes and nine. So the level development divide the health of a type by uh, three basic, like three blocks of three. So nine levels altogether. There's the unhealthy levels, nine through seven. Average levels, six through four, meaning that most people are here most of the time and healthy, which is three to one. And uh, assigned each level a different, uh, like, you know, different name that's describing what's going on at that level, corresponding uh, motivations, fears, and desires related to each level, as well as traits and behaviors. And this might uh, offend uh, Institute folks or whatever, but I think that it was sort of a, you know, it was like a, like a stroke of genius, basically, on the part of Don Riso to see this pattern and to start to describe it. But I, I sometimes don't think that Don uh, even realized the full extent of what he, um, what he uncovered. Because I think that sometimes the way that the levels are understood or used, like a lot of times levels of health are understood to be how functional we are and how um, our quality of our attitude. And this is one of the big uh, mistakes or problems with using the levels of health because it's not a measurement of attitude and it's not a measurement of how functional you are. Uh, that's a that's like a personality's reading of what health would mean because like I want to be a better personality it means I'm more functional, my attitude's better. Uh, but the levels of health or development are actually ways that uh, we find freedom from the personality. And so levels three, two, and one have to do with being rather than functioning. And what that means is that there is some measurement of ego transparency. There's some, some recognition or identification with being rather than the functioning of the personality. And that also means that it doesn't matter how happy you feel or how good you feel. You can be completely miserable at level one, for example, uh, and completely overjoyed at level six. And what you are responding to is different and what is actually um, what's actually occurring in terms of the development of the of being is different at these levels and so sometimes i think that 
the kind of leap between the average levels to the healthy levels is not properly understood, even sometimes by people who have uh, within the Enneagram Institute, like really studied the levels of development. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a spot to maybe talk about the shock point. Is that appropriate yeah. here? Uh, how would all, you describe that? So, all right, first, so the aim of the Enneagram itself, right, is to uh, be more conscious. And one of the things I often see, especially online when people talk about the levels of health, is thinking that the higher a level you are at, the more you have overcome your type. And so you see all this wishy-washy stuff of like, well, you know, I'm a very healthy four, I'm healthy two, I'm a healthy whatever, so I don't look as much like my type. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a huge fucking red flag, that you're either not your type or that you're not seeing shit and that you're probably at level five or six. And the reason being is that the healthier we are, the, the higher of a level of development we're at, the more our personality is rendered transparent to us because there's more consciousness. So your personality is not going away, but there is more there with your personality. And so in a sense, you are seeing more clearly what keeps you asleep. You're seeing more in vivid detail how asleep you are. And so that's one of the paradoxes or counterintuitive things about going up the levels is that you see what prevents you from seeing more and more and more clearly and what's dominating your consciousness more clearly and how mechanical you are more clearly. Um, and so David is speaking to a shock between level seven and level six, and then another shock between uh, level four and level three. And if this term shock is not familiar to y'all, this is like a Gurdjieff term for the, basically where there's a complete reorganization or change of the, the state or quality of something. So. Uh, level seven and down, you are like mental illness, like full blown personality disorders, and uh, you're completely just fucking a machine uh, from the like mechanical. Uh, from the like level four to level three, so level four, you can be perfectly wonderful and happy, have all the right values, and do everything. Everybody loves you, and you're you're manifesting your gifts and all this other shit. Uh, but you're still just coming from the personality. Uh, level four is called the level of imbalance or the social role. And so like, you know, you're, you're doing your, your, like your, your work as your type or whatever, uh, on a pretty functional, healthy, so to speak, healthy in a conventional sense, not in a developmental sense, but conventional sense of like, everything seems to be working the right way, but you are fully identified with your personality, right? You're just the best version of what your personality can produce. But, um, there's no, there's no real sense of your you're, there's a foot in being. You're still taking yourself to be the functional apparatus of the personality. So there's a shock between level four and level three. Level three is where there is some degree of ego transparency. There is some way that you are seeing through the identification with what you think you are. That there is, it's not just your cognitively knowing that you're not your type, uh, that there is a felt being experience in all three centers, body, heart, and mind, that there is something else there with your pattern, with your personality, than just your personality. It's not your personality observing your personality, that there is something free and impartial. And um, one way of understanding or thinking about this is that at level four, uh, everything that we feel and are responding to is focused on the self. So at level four, as a type four, my passion, my like I'm uh, my passion as a four is envy, which is like chronic disappointment. And so that doesn't just describe when I feel like shit or when I feel disappointed. 
but that can also describe where I'm feeling narcissistically good. Like things are working out. Everything's coming up, John. You know, it's like everything uh, is working out as I my personality wants. Like I'm getting the sexual attention I want and I'm getting the social attention I want and getting the self-preservation shit I want. And so everything is good, feels great, but it's a, it's a positivity that's completely in relation to the self-concept based on my personality, meaning uh, it's an up or a down. In, the, in like spiritual language, uh, I'm still a slave to my likes and dislikes. And the passion is our slavery to our likes and our dislikes, our always moving toward what we like and away from what we dislike. And that's normal and fine. But when we are only a like and dislike machine, we're asleep. And so at level four, we're great. We're there. Most of us are there most of the time or maybe level five, uh, but we are asleep. And so level four means that something other than the like and dislike plus and minus is there and can be there impartially. So obviously we want to avoid our dislikes, right? But uh, when we're not neurotically avoidant or needing to resist reality to avoid our dislikes or to extend ourselves where we lose our center to pursue our likes, uh, there's something that's free and alive there. So that's level the shock between level four and level three. And to get from level four to level three, is not automatic. It's not something that just happens to us. It requires intentional work, requires inner work. And so a lot of people are like, yeah, I go from level three to level two. You know, maybe I'm level two. You're probably level five, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that shit so often. And I think that's mm-hmm. something that needs to be stressed um, when people are carrying these levels to what degree, because, you know, pe- that's another thing that comes up a lot is this idea of, you know, growth. And people think, oh, if I just make a couple of these changes or I just took this course or I, I learned about my type and I'm aware of my type. And so now I'm gr- Or I started grown. drinking green smoothies. You know, that right. they've grown and they're, they've become all of a sudden level three or level two to get an idea. I don't think people really understand the type of intentional inner work that it would take to go from four to three and what growth means um, and from going from one level to the next. I think we should, you know, hit on that like what do you mean intentional inner work what would that look like how long would it take how would they know well the thing that moves the needle in terms of a level is or any time kind of growth in terms of inner work is attention right and so we're talking about liberate like it's it's sort of like we have a say like a finite amount of attention And that's not just conscious attention. That's also unconscious attention. You know, like our type is basically what we're giving conscious and unconscious attention to all the time. And so if you think about a finite amount, like a, like a substance of attention, um, most of the time our attention is occupied with all kinds of conscious and unconscious processes. Like, um, as an example, as a four, I'm constantly referencing my inner state, whether I know it or not. My attention is always there, and it's usually on the emotional aspect with a bit of uh, mental shit worked in, keeping me frustrated, keeping me doing my fourth thing, keeping me separate, whatever. Uh, so to do inner work means to liberate our attention to some degree in body, in heart, and in mind at the same time. And so uh, it, you kind, I kind of think of like our attention. Attention is like an you could say it's the instrument of our consciousness. It's the the intentional aspect of our consciousness. So when you do inner work, it's like almost like a sponge uh, that has absorbed 
like the liquid of consciousness and you're doing some squeezing and, and separating the two. And so what actually helps you become more uh, free is to be present, right? Is to be present in body, heart, and mind. And that means your attention is not just caught, it's active and it's not necessarily occupied. Like it's hard to sometimes imagine attention that's not just like focus. It's different than focus. Grasping at things. Right. It's exactly. It's not a grasping attention. It's just like a, it's an awareness, but it's not just in our dominant center. It's in our body through sensation. It's in our heart through feeling. It's in our mind through our awareness or perception or seeing rather than just our thinking, thinking, thinking. And so, you know, and it's not that uh, this awareness, this feeling, and this sensation are themselves products of consciousness, but that is what we are conscious of. So it's still something separate, but we are with it. And so to go from level four to level three requires a certain amount of liberated attention. That's what I was saying before, where we are aware of our sleep. We're not awarding ourselves for our degree of achievement or our degree of freedom as we, we, we like judging ourselves to be free because that's like the personality needs that reward. Like if we are impartial, that, that, that impartial aspect of ourselves, essence, basically, essence doesn't need to be rewarded for being awake. And so it just is what it is. It is with what's there. And that means it is it's being with our inattention, with our patterns and seeing the whole thing. So in this podcast, we always emphasize like, and kind of try to represent that, like, you know, and this is not a statement on our, any of our levels of health or development or whatever, but you know, that it's not like you go from level four to level three and suddenly you're free to free of hatred or you're free of being horny or you're free of wanting to, uh, you know, whatever, eat a, you know, eat disgusting food or something like that. It's just that you are there more vividly with that mechanism in your personality. You're not taking your personality personally. And there's something that is separate from that mechanism that can choose with like a capital C. Um, and so I know I'm talking a lot, but to give it a, a concrete, not, I mean, not concrete, but a, an actual example that I experienced once was, um, I'm, I, I used to belong before COVID to a Gurdjieff movement class and Gurdjieff movements are sort of like dances, but it's not exactly dances, but they're these very precise, uh, movements that, and you can Google them on YouTube, Google, uh, Gurdjieff movements in Meetings with Remarkable Men, uh, which is a movie somebody made on the life of Gurdjieff that sucks, but the movements are great. And uh, they require enormous amounts of attention in body, heart, and mind to, to perform, an enormous sensitivity, and they require such focus that you're, you, know, you, you may be uh, available to, like, you could say, finer energies or higher states or whatever. Um, but I suffer through a Gurdjieff movements class, and one time we had this substitute piano t piano player. There's they play piano and you know you, you move according to however the lesson is and it's they're they, they're an enormous amount of movements, very complicated. Some of them are Gurdjieff made them up and some of them he got from Sufi and Christian monasteries and all kinds of places and dervish places in Tibet and stuff. So anyway, we're doing this one that's like a like a dervish movement that has like a pretty intense, like very demanding kind of push, and I'm in the front row. And this substitute piano teacher who was there, he was an old guy, very crotchety. Uh, he like slams on his 
keyboard on the piano and he like calls me out and he's like, you in the front, you in the front, you are throwing me off. Cause I was like fucking <laughs> no. up, I guess, or whatever. And he starts going off on me in front of the, like the teacher who I respect enormously. She is a type one also. And so her respect, you know, hits my back walls. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of people I respect were in that class. A lot of Gurdjieff people that were really cultivated. My friend Jason, who maybe we'll have on and Amara and all these other people. And so anyway, he's like berating me. And I noticed all this shit like, like emerge in my body as like the, the wanting to protest, the wanting to tell him to fuck off or to show he's wrong <laughs> or even have an inner protest of like, oh, actually I was doing it right. Or all this kind of stuff. <laughs> Um, or to like do a four-ish, like, like death stare, all these kind of things. <laughs> um, I could feel it like as, a, as, as the words emerging through my, my solar plexus up to my throat, I could feel it as like a, you know, almost like a release of like some kind of adrenaline, you know, that all that stuff you have when you have an emotional reaction, I could see it in like 3d in slower than it normally happens. Like than I normally experience it happening. And I just, I saw it all come up and then I just like, let it go. I like, I made the choice to let it go. And I just walked to the back. Like he told me, get in the back. And I just walked in the back and I just let myself be like consciously humiliated. And it was like, I was sort of free of having to react to his bullshit. And it was this moment that was very, that was the teaching moment for me. And uh, that I didn't have to like give a shit. I didn't, it, it wasn't like a oh, fuck that guy. It was just like, I was free from it. I, I there was yeah. no energy around it. And you got there because you were immersed in the whole movements thing, right? Yeah, I was very present in body and heart and mind. And so it wasn't like this thing that happened in me, it wasn't like I'm having a reaction. It was like there was a reaction happening that that something in me that I could call I could be with and then choose if I want to identify with it or not. Another example is like in meditation, people always talk about trying to stop their thinking and you can't stop thinking. What you can do and what the freedom of the mind is, is the seeing of what's going on in the mind. It's the seeing itself is the freedom. So you're not stopping thought. You're just seeing the thought in a way that you're not, you're not identified with the thought. And so there you're is not a, judging it. Or... You're, not, you're just with it. You're just seeing it. You're seeing yeah. it and you're not going to sleep. You're not getting caught by it. You're just, okay, there's more thoughts and more thoughts and more thoughts. And that's the freedom is the seeing. It's so simple that we don't, uh, normally, um, we, we complicate it, but that's like the point is like, there's a freedom that's different than the personality can imagine of freedom. Kind of like the Eckhart Tolle thing of your, you become more <clears throat> in actual health, become more identified with the part of you that's watching the personality. Mm -hmm. do it yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing that I want to make a distinction between what John, what you just described in terms of, uh, an inner work practice that can move you to a place where you are observing what's going on in all three centers versus what kind of happens when um, you learn about the Enneagram, you, you learn about your type and you start to see your type in action, which I think gives you some level of um, ability to step back and watch yourself do your type. It's what people are referencing when they say, oh, I learned the Enneagram and I've been, you know, working on myself, quote unquote, working on myself. Um, that now I, I feel like I'm at level three or level two, where I don't think uh, just knowing about your type, which even though it does give you a level of awareness and some ability to step back, I don't think it's the same thing like you're describing as uh, some sort of intentional practice where you're 
you're able to loosen loosen the, these grips in all three centers to be able to watch what's happening. Because even if you even eyes, you know, working with Enneagram for over over a decade and being aware of my eight stuff, when push comes to shove, as much as I know, it's still happening. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I mean, there is a little bit of freedom, but it's not like the the degree of freedom I have is only as much as uh, I've done some intentional work. So I think what I'm trying to say is that um, there's a difference between just knowing about your type structure and trying to make changes uh, versus some kind of intentional work that you're doing to get more present in these other centers, in all three centers. Yeah, totally. Like just being able to have a very clear and accurate seeing of the mechanisms of your personality is great and necessary, but it's still not the thing itself. And uh, like the thing itself, the, the actual freedom, capital F that we're talking about here. Well, another paradox about it is that we don't we don't make ourselves free. It's basically like, for lack of a better term, an act of grace. And so, if you're doing a practice, like as Madame de Salzman, one of Gurdjieff's principal students and founder of the Gurdjieff Foundation, says in her book Reality of Being, sensation, physical sensation, is the only accurate instrument of self observation. And this is because we can't trick ourselves into sensing or not. It's like we can believe and see whatever the fuck we want to pretend we see in ourselves. And our, our emotional life is reacting to the past constantly. But the body is always in the present moment. And so being anchored in sensation and, and you know, the importance of breath and sensation practice can't be overstated. And that, that in turn helps the heart uh, actually like not be fearful of contact with the present moment like even if we're miserable our misery is often a shield for the heart to not stay in contact with the present and the reason is is because when we are going over familiar miseries in our you know psycho in our psychology and memories and conscious and unconscious uh our sense of self stays the same it stays familiar which is you know better for from the point of view of the ego uh, than to grow. But when we actually make contact with the present moment, it changes us. And so there is a way that our identity is no longer under our control. And this is fucking terrifying for the personality because who am I is like an o- ongoing open experience to be touched and changed in ways that uh, I don't have control over. It's like, I mean, a small example is like when, when our heart is touched and we fall in love without meaning to, mm-hmm. and the consequences that can have in our practical life when we fall in love uh, outside of our own control it's like oh we gotta make either we gotta stuff it down or make some big fucking changes that are very uncomfortable so the heart can be real and present only when the body is really here and like a guardian of the heart and then when the heart is actually present then the mind can kind of like stop trying to do and solve everything on the heart's behalf it can kind of just be open and available and see. And so we can only prepare the ground for that shock between level four and three. But that shock is like, it's like we cultivate sensitive energy, so to speak. We do our practice, we meditate, we whatever, we breathe, we are trying to be present. And we uh, like, and, and then it's like we, we make a space in ourselves where something else can, can, you could say like something from the higher can come in. And that's what brings us to a higher level because it's like the ego can't change the ego. What, what happens is the ego can just relax 
and uh, be available for that kind of transformation to happen, but it seems like a miracle or a grace or just random. Um, but again, it's not just a product of like having better emotions. It's not mm. a product of being happier or being positive to everybody. Uh, it doesn't really give a shit about our emotions. Uh, our feelings are a different thing than our emotions. And that's a whole topic. But when the heart can actually be touched, that's the real thing. And, and it could be grieving. It can be sorrowful. It can be joyful, whatever. But it's different than oh, I'm going to love, like sending love to all my animal friends. And, you know, like, like just love your enemy. Like, like love your enemy from a, like a capital L place and fucking hate them, you know, from the point yeah. of view of like, like, I'm going to punch a fucking fascist in the face if they, you know, whatever. It's like, like, you be can be prepared. healthy and do that. You can, you can, you have to be free inside. And it's like, they're like, like, I, I haven't read much of it, but actually I'm, I'm cheesy. And I, I bought uh, the radical King by Cornell West because I was like, what is like a, like, I think, I think MLK had some access to the higher, like he was like, you know, not maybe like a, not to idealize him or whatever, but I think he had some freedom inside. Mm -hmm. So like, how do you have like a radical uh, life in the real world while being connected to the higher? And, you know, like, it's not just, oh, uh, like the white person version of like a peaceful protest, you know, like, <laughs> it's not that shit, you know, but it's how do you, how do you fight monsters without becoming monster yourself? Mm, yeah. You know, I, I remember, uh, I think it was Natalie who had mentioned that she'd read a book about Gurdjieff and was like really disappointed about what she found out because he wasn't a nice guy. And, nice. you know, nice like his, his, <laughs> his approach to inner work was, you know, really fucking with people. And I had a conversation with someone who was you know, about eightness um, and mm. one of the things that I wanted to stress is that health is going to look different for every type. And what often happens within the Enneagram is that someone imposes their own idea of what health is on another type as to say, you know, eights aren't uh, an eight who's acting this way isn't a healthy eight. And it's like, well, if you believe that Gurdjieff was healthy, practicing inner work and all that stuff then um, someone could read a biography or read about Gurdjieff and his practices and, and walk away feeling like he was such a terrible and unhealthy human. But it's like, you know, it's going back to this idea that people have that health means positive outcomes, positive, positive attitudes, being nice. Um, and that, you know, fucking with people as a, as a mode of getting them to get in touch with their three centers can be healthy depending on the perspective yep. of the type structure involved, like, you know, like what a type a six or a nine thinks healthy is not going to be what, what that might look like for eight or like, you know, John, you're talking about MLK uh, back then he was the most hated man in America. Totally. <laughs> you know, <laughs> totally. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway. I mean, you raise a good point too, that it's like, I don't know how healthy Gurdjieff was and I don't know how healthy he was all the time mm -hmm. or sometimes he obviously had a very uh, clear and I think if you know anything about him, indisputable connection to something higher. Yes. Uh, at the same time, he was still his personality and still had it. And, you know, if you confuse health and attitude or health and personality, uh, like he was an asshole in a lot of ways. And like he did not always conduct himself well. He had lots of babies, mamas, and all this kind. You know, uh, <laughs> he was an eight, and <laughs> and, and 
you know, like it, a lot of some his morality and things like that are really questionable to the point of you could just flat out say, I think that was really fucking wrong. But, you know, the inner freedom versus being a kind, respectable and good person is a whole other question. And that's I think that's uncomfortable because it sort of feels like, fuck, like, you know, we want everybody to be good. I obviously wish Gurdjieff was a better person from a moral point of view. You know, it's like we kind of want our heroes to be heroic and perfect. You know, it's like for me, I don't like, you know, I can't, I don't know how fucking healthy Gurdjieff was. I don't know how healthy he was most of his life or if like he had these moments and then he collapsed back into being a personality. But what I do know is that by practicing what I have practiced and gathered from his work, uh, I have had significant transformation compared like relative to where I was before I found it. And so like that's, that's my real measurement for myself is like i don't know what the fuck gurdjieff was i don't he's a human being whatever but inner development it's like it's its own thing and you don't reward yourself for it like you have to just you're like okay like i need to see what i'm where i'm unable to see now and have that willingness i think it's important because to 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 hit on this idea that to to decouple health from this idea that people have of being a good person and a lot of times people idealize someone like Gurdjieff or MLK and they later find out that they had these skeletons in the closet like um, MLK was uh, cheating on his wife and the FBI tried to use that to get him to shut up uh, threatened him with releasing that information and so people find out about that kind of stuff and they're like oh I thought he was such a great person but it's like this is obviously someone who had a connection to something higher uh, who had um, represented something huge and life-changing and trans- transformative and you can say that about Gurdjieff but you know to sort of ruin this idea that a good person quote-unquote good moral person um, is a healthy all the time like you have to be mm-hmm. if you're healthy then you're a good moral person all the time but that's not what health is describing so I mean based on what I've heard from you John that Gurdjieff had this um, seemed to have this inner freedom that he could on one hand, be really cruel to get someone to to um, experience something that they probably were avoiding and they needed to. But on the other hand, could be really gentle and really he could he could adapt yes. to what was necessary. And that's something as an eight to you know, to not be so attached or to be so imprisoned by the structure of pushing and pushing, pushing that you have the capacity to be soft when it's time to be soft and and uh, harsh. Of course, you know. But um, that's what health would look like for an eight, not necessarily this eight who's a saint all the time. Yeah, I mean, you you nailed it, Emiko, with like, uh, Gurdjieff had to use the, the terms inner and outer considering. And inner considering was where you are unconsciously or consciously identified with other people's feelings, reactions to you, expectations, where it's like, I hope Emika likes me. So I'm going to, you know, or like, or fuck Emika. You know, one of these, one of these kind of reactions where my inner life is somehow in response to my feelings about somebody else. Uh, outer considering is this capacity to surrender all your inner shit and your positions and your whatever and adapt. And it's not just like adapting to like accommodate or make somebody feel whatever, but it's adapting in a way um, that you are actually experiencing some freedom from self. And actually meeting somebody where they need to be met according to the, you could say, demands of the moment. And so it's not just I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm accommodating and polite. It's like I can, as you're speaking to, it's like 
this this requires a softness of heart and i can just go there and that was one of the things that people who were around gurdjieff as an example spoke to a great deal was that he could you know there's on one hand people changing moods on a dime that's like fucking you know a manipulative tactic but then there's another way of being able to assert your energy very strongly here and and you know with the force it needs and then over here talk to a kid in a way that's like all of a sudden you're completely soft you know and it's like because you're not caught inside and so all these things don't really have very good measurements from the outside and that's okay because it's not for up to us to determine who's healthy or not it's not up to us to be like oh this is healthier i'm healthier you're healthier whatever we get caught in the personalities needing to like oneify everything and not just ones do that like everybody does that and so uh, it's, you know, it's sort of like telling a personality to shut the fuck up and to realize like planet earth is like some other realms hell and it is deeply hard to be a human being and everybody fucks up and hurts each other and does the wrong stuff and gets identified and reacts to whatever you gotta have mercy on yourself and you can have mercy on other people who are assholes from a heart level at the same time as hold a boundary from a body level. And don't confuse the boundaries and being compassionate with somebody. But it's like that thing that our personality wants to idealize or to say or to make clear distinctions or, or determinations about reality. Got to let that shit go because uh, that's just preventing us from being healthy in a real sense. And so it's just like just be like radically merciful and at the same time have really strong boundaries and be really uh, wise about what needs to happen like like. Should we abolish prisons? I don't know. But should some people be fucking locked up? Uh, fucking yes. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know I, I just watched that fucking Richard Ramirez documentary and I, I've never seen anything so evil, you know, and it's like no positive treatment towards that guy. Like, you know, <laughs> but how do you can you is there a way to like see humanity in like the darkest places and take the necessary steps like you can you can. Like, could you love uh, somebody really fucking dark on some level, in personal level or higher level, and take the actions necessary to to prevent them from being the e like unleashing that evil in the world? You know, mm -hmm. living in two worlds at once. I ha I have a story. <laughs> story time <laughs> uh, with David. Story time. <clears throat> uh, somewhere I'm gonna be terrible at telling the story. Um, really? Yeah. Uh, so. Somewhere around maybe like 10 or 12 years ago, I don't know what I was doing at the time as far as like any kind of practice, but, you know, something. And um, it was also when I was intensely in the Riso Hudson discussion board. But anyway, I had an experience of what I think was jumping into health for about a day and a half. And it was a, uh, an experience of, uh, it was just total freedom. It was, I was just completely not tethered to any of my judgments about myself or anyone or how, you know, there was just no, um, no grasping at, um, it was, it's, it was just extreme freedom. Right. And I, I don't know very well how to describe that state but to me what's interesting actually is the come down which was my type nine personality um started to come back and as that was happening what i was um 
seeing or how I was judging what I had just experienced was that it was satanic what I just experienced because it was too much freedom, Mm. right? It was way too much freedom. And it was the sense that in that state that I was in, I could have gone anywhere, right? Uh, It was, it was, um, well, it was just, it was freedom beyond freedom. You know what I mean? It was just Mm -hmm. uh, way beyond whatever my stupid sense of what freedom is, right? Yes. Um, And it was, um, yeah, and it just started to, I mean, I was intrigued at the same time by, oh, wow, that's kind of interesting that I'm seeing that as satanic. Hmm. Uh, uh, so anyway, that's that's the story. That's brilliant. Like, I mean, you're making, raising a really valuable point is that the reason we resist freedom is because it's terrifying and it it is free, yeah. but it's not like, we, it's not autonomy freedom. It's not, I'm free to do whatever. And it's, it's it's impossible for the personality to describe or grab onto. Um, in a sense, that freedom is almost like another kind of lack of freedom because it's like a an obedience to something that's bigger than my ego eye. And it it's like a you know, the ancient people describe it as like taking your place in the cosmic functioning, but it's you're not it's not like, oh shit, I'm oh, everything's good and I'm home and it's free and great and Mm -hmm. there's a reason we resist it yeah no it was um the coming back down from it was what was so fascinating about it is just and watching my personality do its reactions to what i had just experienced Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. that's that's great and i had a it's not similar but it's it's sort of like the come down thing is interesting because uh i remember one of my harshest or most disappointing lessons of the work for me was um, every year, my Grojift group has a about a week long uh, Vipassana retreat with we do movements of Vipassana practice for days, and it's like really intense and wild. And I remember on my first one, uh, you know, first of all, it's almost like you have to get to a genuinely hopeless place for any transformation to happen. Like mm. you have, you have to like, you're, you're working and you're sensing yourself and you're doing the, your, the, the breath sensation practice. And you're like, nothing's fucking happening. Nothing's happening. And you can know that your personality is not going to make anything quote happen, but uh, you have to come to a place of like just total despair of like, and basically faithlessness in your ego for anything else to open. And mm-hmm. so I, like, I came to a place where something opened just a little bit and then we had to go to like lunch or something. And <laughs> I was feeling kind of high, like, like just so awake. And I ended up like we had some, some shit to eat that I don't remember what it was, but I remember it was so delicious. Like mm. it was so vivid and I could taste everything. And it was like, I was like, it was almost erotic. And, uh, and then, like, soon after, like, I came down, and what I realized is that I had all that energy I'd accumulated for myself, I dispersed it immediately into something instinctual. And we do this all the time where it's, like, it's hard to describe because it sounds airy-fairy or wooey, but it's, like, when you get more higher energy, higher hydrogens, whatever you want to call it, uh, we have to, like, keep it 
for ourselves. We have to be intentional about like, <laughs> like holding it within our atmosphere and not just dispersing it in our attention. It's like everywhere we look, we're consciously like shooting out some of that energy into whatever we're regarding because we're identified and stuck and whatever. But how to uh, self-remember how to maintain our attention on something external while keeping some of our attention collected on our being, on our inner life is the work. And so I immediately got this like rare hit of higher energy and I just shot it out. I just like <laughs> shot my low basically and uh, dispersed all that energy. I wasted it. And so it was like an mm -hmm. Im immense lesson for me in terms of how energy gets wasted. And it was like, a, it, was, it was crazy. And it was very tragic in a way. I feel like what the health levels are describing, the name doesn't do it justice. Agreed. Um, it, cause for one, for, for one, like it's already used in self-help circles and it's not describing the same thing. What this is describing, I mean, we've talked about Michael teaching, so I'm gonna be referencing that, but well, this is not just a Michael teachings thing, but I think it's Gurdjieffian also. But this idea of the higher centers, and this is probably a, a topic that we should do a whole podcast mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. But this, you know, thing that you're talking about of higher energies, um, at least the way that they look at the centers in the Michael teachings, and I think in Gurdjieffian circles also, is that you've got the regular centers that we're, we all operate from or personality operates from, the thinking, uh, feeling, and the body or moving center mm -hmm. and then there's there's the instinctive center and then there's what they call the higher center so all those centers have higher versions which is like this pure uh essency experience of you know like the thinking center would be like pure truth or um that's not happening on the level of personality and you have to do intentional kind of work to get to that state and it seems like you know the the experience that you had john or i don't know if it's the same thing but the spirit this experience of awakeness is operating on these higher centers um and then you know that can you i guess go back down where you spend that energy on something instinctual yeah yeah uh you know I, like i don't know i i assume but i don't really know if it was some higher center thing but that would definitely make sense but you know gurdjieff spoke as like you said spoke that as having seven centers of intelligence and uh the two higher centers he said are always active in us that the, the that the lower five centers the thinking or intellectual center the emotional center as you said moving or body uh and the sex which is the reproductive system and the instinctive center are all fucking with each other and so you know and they're fucking with each other in the style of our type and including our instinctual type and all that like that's the, the fucked upness of the centers that is so dense and knotted that that there that essence is obscured and essence cannot be you could say like um you know a place of receptivity to higher impressions and it's so like our essence is usually so meager and undefined and um you know i, I don't know how michael teachings talks about a higher body center it's similar. Um, they're basically uh, taking the, the Gurdjieffian with slight modifications, but it's essentially the same thing. So in the, in the Gurdjieff model, it's like we have these higher centers, but there's nowhere for them to be organized. There's nowhere for those impressions to go. It's like they just disperse and you have to make a higher body, but this higher body 
is not like a physical body. It's like a concentration of essence. It's like a, an, a being, a solid being within yourself that, that these impressions are organized. And, and, and you could think of a higher body as like um, a mediation point between like the capital H higher and the lower. And so, uh, you know, that, that our task is to collect our being so that our being, and it's hard, like a, a vague term, but our being can connect the world of function, personality and doing and material world with the world of pure, you could say divine divinity or will or whatever, higher something, but that there's this mediation point and the higher being body is uh, what can be that link and that our task is to work to develop a concentration of things that is a, a, a platform, a landing, a, a receptive place where the higher can come in. Because again, we cannot make our development happen. We can't make the higher happen. We can just receive it. We can be actively receptive to it. And so, yeah, that, 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 those higher centers need somewhere for them to be received within us. And because we're so fucked up in so many ways, uh, there's nothing, there's nothing available. There's no freedom to receive those higher centers. Like what David, what you spoke to, sounds like a higher center experience came in. You know. Yeah. Hey Nancy, do you remember that time you were talking about like you were out camping or something, and then you were up early and you you saw the sunrise, and in that moment you felt like connected to everything. Um, trying to remember. You- a specific time because that's happened a few times <laughs> yeah you know, there's a thing there's a thing called maslow's peak experience the guy that did the maslow's hierarchy of course mm-hmm. and it's and it's a it's um i mean i think it's kind of what you're referring to um with nancy's experience is um and maybe it is kind of like a jump into the upper levels or the higher centers whatever it is um but yeah, where you experience sort of almost uh, the symphonic oneness of everything, and you're kind of detached from all your yeah. usual crap. Yeah, I, I was I was trying to reference that because I, I wanted to uh, something I've been studying recently with these centers or higher centers that I find interesting is that we all at some point have these momentary experiences of something higher that has to do with our higher centers, and it tends to be at least the current thinking that I've, I've landed on is that um, there are things that are called instinctive center um, activities that can quiet the lower centers for enough for, for us to experience these higher centers. I don't know if that's true or not, but, um, but like experiences like, uh, like Nancy had, or, mm-hmm. you know, when we do psychedelics, it did, there's an experience where it's your, everything shuts down in terms of your lower center activities and you experience momentarily this uh connection to everything um and these are kind of or you you might talk about meditation being or breath work these are um what they've called instinctive center activities that can quiet lower centers that so that you can momentary experience these higher centers uh where you're you feel connected to something higher and divine Um, But I find that interesting because it's not, I don't, the word health is not the word I would use to describe all that stuff that we're talking about, because it it brings up a whole bunch of connotations that don't have anything to do with this inner sense of inner freedom and connection to something much higher and bigger, 
where your personality is not involved. Uh, I feel like there has to be a different word because it's, it's, it doesn't feel like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, like what you, what you're speaking to Emika is like dead on uh, in terms of things that can quiet the lower centers and that can be beauty or awe, different practices, uh, whatever. We all have had experiences where the centers become quiet or free or still and something can enter in. And uh, part of the problem that we have is that we typically dismiss those impressions from the higher centers or from at least impressions that we have that represent some freedom from the lower centers, some clarity. We dismiss it as just like a good, good attitude or we create a story of some kind of divine intervention or something. Uh, and we're not just with them and recognizing them for what they are. You know, it's like we, we make them into something or dismiss them into something, but it's like, Gurdjieff talked about three being foods, which are the little food for our bodies, air, which has a kind of a prana property, uh, as well as just actual what we need to breathe, and then impressions. And so what you're speaking to, Emika, is like how we assimilate impressions or not. And if we're able to recognize and identify an experience as actual or real experience without making it better or worse or whatever, special or anything, um, that grows a kind of an inner faith within us that there is something other than the boundaries of the personality. Yeah. Like Nancy, your experience sounded like a higher, um, uh, an experience of the higher moving center. Like, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. That's why I usually go camping at least once every couple of months. Cause that's usually what happens. Like, especially if it's a, you know, beautiful summit and no one else is up there. It's, it's just, everything shuts down for just, just a moment. It's like two seconds. And that's those two seconds is why I go hiking. Um, but I've also had that experience from uh, the first time I took Valium too. <laughs> <laughs> I sat down, I remember I was packing for my trip out West and I sat down on my bed and I was like, because I had just gotten Valium and they were like, make sure you take this and make sure it works for you. And I took it and I sat down on my bed and I was like, is this what other people feel like all the time where they can make decisions. And then I realized that, no, <laughs> I was just calm the fuck down and I could actually hear what was going on. Yeah. It, it's you're, you hear about this thing where people end up making huge life decisions after doing psychedelics. Cause that's what's, you know, I've thought about that kind of shit. And I saw that reference recently in a uh, Michael teaches book just mm -hmm. talking about you know quieting these lower centers so that we can have access to these higher centers and so this experience that people have where you just have like this uh deep knowing from an experience like that where it's like your personality got quiet for just long enough for you to get this all-seeing eye perspective on your entire existence and it's a transformative experience and so like what's going on it's it's like that psychedelic experience was um just shut your personality up enough mm -hmm. for you to experience mm -hmm. something higher and you walked away from that experience like feeling like you had you know like a different insight in, into your whole life and so, i think it's important to note that it doesn't always end up with you feeling better about your life exactly yes <laughs> it's actually horrifying all yeah it's yeah. i mean after like you know after i've cultivated a few of or I don't know, been gifted a few of those moments, whatever. Um, I realized that my threeness keeps me just tethered to the shit 
capitalist society that is America and the world as a whole. And I fucking hate it. And it pisses me off all the time that I need to play into it. Uh, because there's like this part of me that I feel every now and again that's like, you could just exist and just just be. And then the other three part of me is like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> you're, and you're... I'm aware of it now, and it—I mean, to an extent—and it just makes me—it just pisses me off now. That's so. That's great. Like you're seeing the slavery. That's like that's it. That's the work. And it's like not to do anything about it. And it's like it's totally normal to react to it. But it's like as much as possible, be with that and like suffer the the feeling that, that creates the slavery. That you know, and again, in the gurge of language, uh, that quality is called remorse like in a capital R sense where you're not just feeling bad. It's deeper than that. And it's yeah. not as dramatic and it's not as wasteful of energy. It's just like, you're, you're really feeling the loss that has incurred when you've allowed yourself to be asleep. And that loss, that sorrow is like what starts to purify the heart. It starts to and make that, the heart say, I'm not doing that anymore. Sorry, dude. The person, yeah. That the personality, it's the realizing that, you've been doing it to yourself. You've been mm -hmm. keeping yourself in prison. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, for me, it's like a constant grief, like a loss of something constantly. <laughs> totally. It's shit. And freedom, it, yeah. I think it's the main, I mean, freedom, I don't know if it works exactly as a replacement for the word health, but I mean, that really is the thing, I think. Yeah. It feels yeah. like a, a slight ego death to some degree. Like, mm -hmm. like, sure. Sometimes people talk about how they they're like worried about doing psychedelics or doing breath work because the experience sounds like a loss of control mm -hmm. <laughs> because mm -hmm. what's happening is that you are getting you know ripped away from your your own bearings of your own personality reactions like you're getting this bird's eye view on everything and what you end up seeing might be probably going to be upsetting to the personality you're not going to be the same when you come back because you're going to get a completely different perspective a higher perspective and so i don't the word growth or health doesn't describe that for me because it's 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 like a, an awakening that's happening exactly um that's coming from just like a very it's like you zoomed out like on your whole life um to be able to see all of it and be like shit fuck that was part of the uh the experience I described was um, I was on one in one sense out of control. Yes, and I and I didn't feel the need to be in control. Mm -hmm. And that was and that was part of what was so as in the come down was satanic. It was like, oh my god, I didn't even need to be in control. Yeah. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. 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 I don't know the word to describe that but it just i don't think health or growth um because that implies a progression a linear progression to something better and this is not this is like an untethering <laughs> it's like it's like i'm being um there's a little bit of more of a gap between the me that's beyond this personality machine you know like there has there's a little bit more separation between that i don't i don't know what to call that but it's not health or growth to me totally and like um you know you're describing like small ego deaths it's like who was it that said that philosophy was preparation for death was it like plato or anyway don't know that one you know it's like especially the greeks the way they understood philosophy which is so different than modern ways of understanding philosophy was 
philosophy, the love of wisdom was a way of um, transforming the soul. And it wasn't just, I can think very uh, abstractly. <laughs> it was a, a whole process of uh, orienting the intellect or the nous, N-O-U-S, intellect with a capital I, the, like the spirit basically, to be able to like see reality as it is and be free in a way to see and um that that required dying before we die and then like and that that goes along precisely with with sufism uh where inner development especially in in northern sufism uh they they have these what are called fanas these fana means annihilation but they're like these deaths and um, they're like sort of, there's four, sometimes five, depending on what source you consult, but it's like how we, how we wake up, there's four main gradations. And so the first one is the annihilation of judgment. I'm going to fucking mispronounce this shit, but it's fina'i akam. And that means liberation of the spell of the external world. There is fina'i afal, the annihilation of acts. It's the realization in the inner world, the the, that we cannot do so all this kind of helplessness that we're speaking to is like a real understanding of like we can't do that we are to receive and the third one is uh i'm not going to keep pronouncing the arabic but annihilation of attributes the realization in the inner world that our existence is not a reality uh and it opens the way to a higher what they call what the text i'm reading says is the third world Finally, annihilation of essence is the abandonment of any separateness from the source. So it's like mm. you annihilate your essence. Like, like the, the sense that even <laughs> essence is something <laughs> is annihilated. So these are all deaths. Yeah, that's what it feels more like. It's not, you know, the health level. Health level sounds like, well, you start at level one and or, you know, you start to progress and go up the ladder. You know, it sounds capitalistic in a way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it does. That's what Rinpoche, Trungpa Rinpoche calls spiritual materialism, where we mm. we use uh, spiritual awakening to be an ego building project of how awake I am. Mm. And that's like and what that is, is America. What we when we when we like. Being present is being present with everything. It's not just being present with the good or presence doesn't just happen at the exclusion of our sleep or by getting away from the quote unquote bad or the thing that makes us asleep. It's just being with that too. Mm-hmm. So like in, I know I'm, t- shut me the fuck up if I'm talking much, but. <laughs> no. Uh, in all ancient, good stuff. In ancient Egypt, uh, here we go. Oh, never um, mind. Uh, shut uh, up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Abort. <laughs> yeah. End the call. End the call. <laughs> So there's this like the the one of the archetypal or central mythological motifs was the battle between the hawk-headed god Horus and the god Set, who's considered like the god of evil. Uh, Horus is like on the the earthly realm, the realization of Ra, the represented by the solar disk, uh, who is the absolute. And so the hawk, the reason is hawk-headed because the hawk circles the sun is from the solar realm and descends into the earthly realm and um the pharaoh is identified with horus and horus it's like horus is the christ he is the redeemer and the avenger and uh 
you know, like he's sort of he's like God on Earth, basically. Uh, Horus and Set get into this battle. Set represents the instincts in the material world. His head uh, is weirdly shaped. It's shaped like an Egyptian plow because it like it's what sort of destroys the Earth, but it destroys the Earth so that uh, it can be renewed. Seeds can be planted and harvest can come. And so these two forces are battling with each other. And eventually, Horus ends up winning over Set, but not killing Set. And it's this whole fucking weird story where, like, uh, basically, Horus gets Set to, to eat his cum. <laughs> and what that means is that even in the material world is the seed of the divine. Uh-huh. But these two forces, Horus and Set, are brought into the right relationship by Isis, who represents the presence. She's present with both Horus and Set. And so... Uh, the Egyptians would depict the enlightened pharaoh as a as as a human body with the head of Horus and Set together in union, mm-hmm. so that the, the 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 enlightenment or the awake pharaoh was the integration of Horus and Set together, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, I just I think there's a lot of uh, self help development influence on on the concept of health in the enneagram, even the way it's devised. I don't I don't. It just implies it's playing on that sort of game of earning spiritual points. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you, you know, that, that's what it feels like. Whereas the actual experience of momentarily feeling free from personality, it's such, um, it can be uncomfortable and scary because there's so much comfort in, in this attachment to this personality and, and these instinctual reactions that we have. I think there's a lot of that's why a lot of people uh, avoid these kinds of experiences because the loss of com- control completely that's an uncomfortable place mm-hmm. you know and the really harmful part of making it like a ladder or earning points is if someone realizes that they aren't there then getting really like in their head or attached to the fact that they aren't in level three and they aren't in level two and that's bad and they're wrong and mm. blah 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 mm-hmm. like very christian kind of mm-hmm. yep. feel to it <laughs> yeah i mean fucking dead on nancy it's like the 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 that horse and set union like that is being present with where we're at and what that means is a radical self-acceptance which is like the personality wants to go oh, but what if i'm a bad person it's like shut the fuck up like <laughs> try to be a good person but also like be with what and who you are like accept it like on a capital a acceptance it's like like you are where you're at and so be with that don't that doesn't mean don't try to improve in some way but don't grasp and like don't allow your core to, to be lost because you're grasping for something. Like one way to say it is like um, there's a it plugs into some of how I'm approaching the Bhava Chakra Buddhist symbol where there's an underworld and a, you know, sunlit world. And there's um, well, the whole death, you know, death and decay and the earth and is getting being fed by the teeming feverish rotting uh plants animals etc etc that's all part of the cycle right and feces and it's all Mm -hmm. it's it's shit right and it's feeding life though right Mm -hmm. like uh, like it like on the surface of the earth 
that's um, you know you're seeing the the nice um, the beauty of nature and so forth underneath you know there's all this stuff that's happening underneath that's the ugly right and the and the death and it but that's but it's all cyclical and there's a there's a balance to it all and it, and you know it's kind of um, it's kind of like the fire of life that's under the earth that's um, you know that accelerates plant growth which feeds animals and the whole all the cycles of nature and so forth and so that that I'm just correlating that into sort of a different perception of <clears throat> you know what we're talking about here about health right where you're you know you're embracing the shit too right okay. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. cool Ready. all right later bye, bye. later bye, bye.